Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. I'm Pastor Stephan DeWitt. It's great to be with you. Um, not singing on Easter is the most unnatural thing in the world. It's something I learned this morning. Like, <laughs> singing on Easter is an, is a, is an involuntary action, right? Um, a great consolation for us, though, is that we have these musicians here this morning. Shall we thank them together? Thank you, folks. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Mark 16. Uh, Mark 16, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. For, uh, use the Bibles if, if there's one in front of you there. Well, I know there is, so you have no excuse. Use the Bibles if you would. It's on page, oh, what is it, uh, 1454. I'll explain why I need your Bibles open in a bit, okay? Mark 16, the first eight verses. Listen to God's Word. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Do not be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who is crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I should probably explain. Um, if you were following along there with a physical Bible, you probably noticed that the book of Mark ends right there in verse 8. However, in almost every Bible translation, there are 12 more verses tacked on there, usually printed in italics, like the ones we have. Those verses are in italics, and there's some kind of disclaimer. Uh, the one in our Bibles says, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20, meaning Mark's gospel ends at verse 8. And then somebody else, <laughs> at some other time, later on, decided that Mark needed a better ending to his story. And so they added one on there for him. Isn't that interesting? Verses 9 through 20 are counterfeit. That's not part of the scripture that Mark wrote. Uh, and every Bible that I know of, every translation that I know of, except for the King James Version, acknowledges this. 
So uh, the, the oldest manuscripts don't have these verses. Um, and if you do this later today, read those extra 12 verses. If you read them, you can, you can just tell. <laughs> the style is different. The voice of the author is very different. There's this really weird uh, line in verse 18 which says that Christians can drink poison and it won't hurt them. Disclaimer, that's not true. <laughs> Don't drink poison today. It will hurt you. Uh, Mark did not write these words. Somebody else, later on, thought that this story wasn't complete, and so they added all of these things, probably a hundred years later. Somebody else felt the need to tack these verses onto the end of Mark's gospel. Why? I read a story this week about an actor who memorized the entire gospel of Mark and then performed it on stage for an audience. And at the first show that he gave, he came to the ending, he came to verse 8, and he finished the show, and nobody clapped. Everybody just sat there. Why? They didn't think the show was done yet. They thought that he probably had more to say. They wanted to hear the end of the story. And so the actor just finally went, Amen? And people kind of... Awkward. Mark's gospel ends awkwardly. Why would a gospel writer whose expressed purpose is to convince us of the reality and the historicity of this story, why would he end with such a cliffhanger? The last, in Greek, the last word of Mark's gospel is a preposition. English teachers are pulling their hairs out, right? It's a cliffhanger. It ends so abruptly, and it ends so inconclusively, and it leaves us with so many questions. The gospel of Mark ends with these three trembling, bewildered women who are running away from the tomb, deciding in their own minds, I'm not going to tell anybody what I saw here today. The end. <laughs> That's the story of Jesus. And so because this is such a strange ending, uh, and because it, because it ends with such a, a cliffhanger, uh, this busybody, whoever it is, a few decades later decided that's not how the story should end. We can't end the gospel of Jesus with these trembling and bewildered women. We can't have people thinking that the gospel of Jesus isn't cut and dry. We can't end without offering some kind of undeniable proof about the physical resurrection of Jesus. We can't, we, we can't stop without wrapping a bow on all of this chaos. We have to systematize this theology. And so he did. And he wrote 12 more verses and he said, oh, look what I found. It's an original copy. Yours are wrong. Counterfeit. Now, why did this person want to do that? Why the need to wrap all of the chaos of Easter into a bow? I I get that compulsion. I get that compulsion. I understand the instinct to try to make all of this story make perfect sense. 
I understand the, the impulse to try to suck all of the doubt out of the air. I understand the impulse to try to take the Christian faith, the whole thing, and to lay it out and to systematize every detail and to line up all the categories and get all the timelines in order and to make the whole thing seem way more manageable and way more believable and way more under control. I understand that instinct. But in the Gospel of Mark, at least in the original Gospel of Mark, we're not given that opportunity. We're given chaos. Here's what can be so hard for Christians to admit about the real story of Easter and about the real Christian faith. It's scary. It's unmanageable. It's incomprehensible. It's unbelievable. And it's more than a little out of control. As much as we uh, want it to be, Easter is not predictable. Easter is not systematized. Easter is not orderly or logical or organized. And neither is the Christian faith. Easter and the Christian faith are scary. And they're vulnerable. And they're chaotic. And they're unsure. And they're jarring. And I'm here to tell you today on Easter morning that there is something truly, truly wonderful about that. So Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome, these three women, get up early on Sunday morning and they gather spices with which they plan to anoint Jesus' dead body not in their wildest imaginations would they, that morning were they going to find anything but a closed tomb and a dead body. Why on earth would they think otherwise? But instead, they find an empty tomb, and they find that this stone is rolled away, and they find a young man. Notice, Mark doesn't even call him an angel. <laughs> it would help if Mark called him an angel. No, no, no. He calls him a young man who's wearing a white robe, and the guy scares the daylights out of him. And the young man says, Do not be alarmed. Do not be afraid, which to me seems like a total waste of breath, right? How are they not going to be afraid? He just scared the snot out of them, and now he's like, no, 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 don't, don't be afraid. Uh, you've probably heard this before, maybe from me, that this is the most repeated command in Scripture. Do not be afraid. Isn't that something? It's the most repeated command in Scripture. And there is something so lovely about that. And it really speaks to the, uh, to the gracious nature of God. That, that the most repeated command in Scripture isn't something like, do not covet, or do not lust, or, or don't worship other gods. No, no, no. The most repeated command in all of Scripture is, do not be afraid. It's beautiful. But also, it occurs to me, especially in this text, how impossible that can be to follow that command. Do not be afraid. Here's what I mean. Um, I'm not a behavioral psychologist, so take this uh, with a little bit of salt, but very often, 
uh, when we're afraid of something, our brains and our central nervous systems are telling us that we need to be afraid of something because we'll have to protect ourselves from something. So if somebody, if somebody jumps out at you from behind a corner, your response is go, ah! Right? That's healthy. That's what a healthy brain and a healthy central nervous system tells a healthy person to do. To go, ah! To, to protect itself. Your brain reacts before you can. Your brain does that for you. It puts you in that fight or flight mode, right? It's involuntary. You're not choosing whether or not to be afraid. That's not your choice. You're not making that choice. Your brain is choosing that for you. We can't choose whether or not to be afraid any more than you and I can choose whether or not to salivate. Okay, we're going to do this together. Everybody stop salivating now. Don't think about what you're going to have for dinner. Tom, you're salivating. I can tell. Yep, there it is. Put your mask back on. We can't control our doubts, or I'm sorry, we can't control our fear any more than we can control our salivating. It's an involuntary action. It's, it's, it's the same as true of our fight or flight response. It's not a conscious decision that we get to make. Do not be afraid. The, the, the young man says, do not be afraid. Is that even possible? And then on top of that, Sometimes it's perfectly acceptable to be afraid. Last week I listened to a, a sermon from Jack Rhoda, as I do just about every week. And he was telling, in this sermon, he was telling a story about his wife, Carol, who is an artist. Uh, and Carol, among other things, she makes uh, these signs that are, that are cut out of metal and they have kind of inspirational Slogans on them. Maybe you know her story, okay? One of the signs, one of these inspirational signs she has says, be not afraid. Lovely, right? And so she sells that in her store. And one day, uh, a doctor came into her store. And the doctor was a pediatric oncologist. Meaning that he works with children who have cancer. Which is a, a, about, that has to be like the most evil thing in the world, Right? That children have cancer. And this doctor comes across this sign that says, be not afraid, and he picks it up, and he says, oh, this is perfect, this is perfect. And he brings it, and he's paying for it, and he says to Carol, I'm going to put this in my office. And so, and so he, he purchased the sign. Now, um, Jack's and Carol, I assume, their initial reaction to this was, oh, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful that this pediatric oncologist is going to put this sign, do not be afraid. But then the more the more that they thought about it, they started to feel conflicted about it because who wouldn't be afraid in the office of a pediatric oncologist? If there's any place in the universe where you have the right to be afraid, isn't it in the office of a pediatric oncologist? Do not be afraid. So not only are we not actually in control of whether or not we get afraid of things because it's fight or flight, but also 
There are times when being afraid is exactly the reasonable thing to be. When you fear that the thing that you value more than anything in your life might be taken away from you. So what does this mean? What what does this young man mean? What is this repeated over and over and over biblical command, do not be afraid? What does this mean? Here's what I think it means. I think it means be at your bravest. Be at your bravest. Which is a line I'm uh, stealing from Frederick Buechner. Here's why I say that. The young man dressed in white says to the women, don't be afraid. And how do they respond? They are horrified. I have great news for all of us today. The three women were totally horrified. So that gives us at least some license to be horrified. The text says they were, they were trembling and they were bewildered, right? And that's okay. Because even while they were terrified, they could still be at their bravest. You and I can be brave and afraid at the same time. We have permission to be afraid. We have, be, we have permission to be scared. We have permission to be scared even by Easter. We have permission to be frightened and bewildered by the realities of the Christian faith and about the fact that we can't ever quite get our hands on it and our arms around it and our minds around it. We have permission to be afraid of those things to be afraid of the complexities of those things, especially in this world that we live in, which is so full of turmoil. Easter is scary. And it's unmanageable. And it's incomprehensible. And it is downright unbelievable. But here's the thing. The power of Easter, brothers and sisters, does not lie in our ability to understand it. I'll say that again. The power of Easter doesn't lie in our ability to understand it or believe it. Christ is risen around us, not because of us. The kingdom is coming in spite of us, not thanks to us. And the gospel is true for us, not through us. It seems to me that the guy, whoever he he is, that tacked those 12 extra verses onto Mark, it seems to me that he was trying really, really hard to take control of a faith that he couldn't quite get control of. And so he had to add a chapter. Uh, everything's okay, don't worry. Everybody, a whole bunch of people saw Jesus, it was fine. He said a few things, you can handle snakes, you can swallow poison, all of this stuff, everything's fine, don't worry about it. P.S., everything's fine. 
He didn't want to give any room to his own fear. He didn't want to give any room to his own anxiety and to his own doubt. So he tried to take control of this whole thing. And he tried to take control of it for you and me. And we need to forgive him for that. Because he wronged us in trying to do that for us. We don't need to take control of our faith. In fact, we can't entirely. Because the power of Easter doesn't lie in our ability to properly understand it or believe it. That's not where the power is. Dante uh, Stewart is a young Christian writer. By young, I mean like 24. It's ridiculous. He says, The Christian faith would be much healthier if we saw it as a journey of a discovery, a journey of discovery, rather than something to be controlled. And he's right. The Christian faith would be much healthier if we saw it as a journey of discovery rather than something to be controlled. Easter's power doesn't lie in our ability to understand it or believe it. Easter's power lies in the Christ who ushered it in. And we're just here to observe it, to testify to it, to sing about it or hum silently along about it, to pray about it, to act on it, to tell our children about it, and on our best days to live as though it might actually be true. These three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, they were given one instruction on Easter morning, and that was to return to Galilee to tell other people what had happened. That's the only thing that was up to them. Return to Galilee and just tell people what you saw. Just tell them. The power of Easter was not on their shoulders. That was taken care of. Just tell the people. And so they left the tomb and they were horrified and they were terrified and they were bewildered and they knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that they were not going to tell anybody what happened. When they left that tomb, they were certain that they were not going to tell anyone what they had seen. And then, what does the text say? By the time they got to Galilee, by the power of the Holy Spirit, They were at their bravest. Be at your bravest. Be at your bravest. And while they were still very, very, very afraid, they became the first preachers of the gospel of Jesus. What can we be brave about this Easter, friends? Be at your bravest. What can we be brave about today? Because Lord knows we need some courage right now. And Lord knows we need some mercy right now. And Lord knows we need some strength right now. What can we be brave about this Easter? Here are some things that started to happen around these women 
When they just, that simple thing, they did that one simple thing, they didn't think they were going to be brave enough to do, they thought, there's no way on earth I'm ever telling anybody about this. Like an hour later, they found themselves doing it, they found themselves being at their bravest. When that happened, here are a few things that started to happen around them. The poor in their community were humanized. And they were resourced. That started to happen. The marginalized in their community were centered. That started to happen. The broken people in their community started to be loved. And the gospel, which they weren't all entirely sure they believed, was starting to get lived out, even in spite of their fear and in spite of their doubt. Forgiveness between one another was starting, to, was starting to be granted, and communities were sharing their resources in common. What can we be brave about this Easter? The power of Easter does not lie in our ability to understand or believe it. Thanks be to God. Easter's power lives in the Christ who has ushered it in. Let's be at our bravest. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, If you're up there, we get a little scared on Easter morning because it reminds us of all of the things that are hard for us to believe. It reminds us of all of the things that we would love to be able to see with our own eyes, but we have not. It reminds us of the faith that we would love to wake up with every morning, but we do not. This year, Jesus, let us be at our bravest so that even though we tremble and even though we are bewildered, that we would go to our own Galilee and we would tell our own people what we have seen. We love you, Jesus. We love for the hope that you inject into this world. We love the, the, the faith that you challenge us toward. We love the kingdom that you tell us you're bringing, and we want so much to be a part of it. May Easter bloom all around us, even in our fear, even in our doubt, even in our anxiety. We thank you for being the power of Easter. In your name we pray.